this is Acts 2, starting in verse 14. Um, Jesus had just died um, and ascended into heaven, and he said, guys, wait for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit had just fallen, and that is what they called Pentecost. And the believers were all gathered in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover, and so like, there's all these people with all these different dialects and tongues, and all of a sudden they're speaking the same language, and all this crazy stuff's going on. And Peter addresses the crowd, and this is what he says. So then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received the Father from the Father that has promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore... Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And I think it's kind of timely that Hugh started us off um, by saying that prayer and almost like worship to God can be summed up in three words. Uh, what were they? Like, wow, I'm sorry, and thanks or help. That's what it was. Uh, and so you got your wow. Um, verse 36, this is the first ever proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And what I really love about this passage is their response to that. Um, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Um, and so the good news of Jesus has just been proclaimed, and they just... They don't know how to respond. They literally are dumbfounded. Just, wow. What, what do we do in response to this? Like, God has made the Jesus whom we've seen, who died and rose again. He's like the one who is in charge of everything, and he came to save us. Like, what do we do with that? 
And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, yeah, if I can just leave you with uh, the news that's old as dirt has a response that's old as dirt. And that is repent and be baptized. And, yeah, so when we say wow to God, there's just something about that that just, like, lights up, you know, the dark corners of your heart. And you, you want to turn, and you turn, and you repent, and you turn back to the Lord. Um, and so, yeah, that's all I got. Um, Brothers, what do we do? <laughs> Repent and be baptized. Hey, thanks, Luke. It's good stuff. Message old as dirt, but one we always need to hear again and again. And if you still have your Bible open and you want to flip over one book, then we're going to be in Romans chapter 16 this evening. So thanks for teeing me up there. And uh, if you haven't met me before, then my name is... Ryan Stalka, I am one of the uh, campus ministers here at Wesley, along with Hugh, who uh, you heard from a few minutes ago. And so tonight we're, gonna, uh, we're going to continue uh, talking about some of uh, these words that we're referring to as the terms of our time. And our term for this week is gaslight, one that I'm sure uh, you've heard, that you're familiar with, uh, that is thrown around. Uh, pretty regularly these days, so uh, let's talk about it. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. And now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. So how does this apply to gaslighting, you might ask? Well, given that the Bible was written a long time ago, and this concept that we've come to understand as gaslighting is relatively modern, there isn't a perfect correlation between a passage of Scripture and that term as we understand it. But there are some key parts of these two verses uh, that do relate to gaslighting as we know and understand it today. Maybe you're a subject matter expert on gaslighting, uh, or maybe you're like me and you were relatively uninformed until about a week ago. Uh, but I've learned that gaslighting, as one website that I found to find it, is uh, to attempt to make someone believe that he or she is going insane by subjecting that person to a series of experiences that have no rational explanation. The term itself originates, and I actually learned this from William a few weeks ago. If you haven't met William, be sure to say hey to him. Uh, but he filled me in on this. There was a play that came out in 1938, which was later turned into a movie called Gaslight in 1944, in which a husband was actively trying to convince his wife that she was going insane. And to do so, this husband went around the house that they lived in and dimmed the lights uh, without her knowledge. Then when his wife asked him if she knew, uh, if he knew what was going on, uh, he denied it and insisted that she was imagining this and that it was all in her head. As this went on over time, uh, his wife naturally began, began to believe that she was going crazy. 
Gaslighting tends to involve uh, what mental health professionals would define as emotional abuse or extreme manipulation. While it happens most commonly in the context of romantic relationships, it can also happen in friendships or family relationships. Some signs uh, that it might be happening or tactics that could be used uh, by the gaslighter are blatant lies, denial of wrongdoing, uh, wearing down uh, and building sort of the suspense over time, confusion, uh, rewriting history, uh, or uh, really just refusing uh, to take any blame, minimizing thoughts or feelings in uh, the situation. On the other end, a victim of gaslighting could begin a second guessing or questioning just about everything that they know. Um, they might wonder if they are being too sensitive. They may be the first to apologize in a situation uh, just in case. They may look to the gaslighter as the only source of truth and might be overall hopeless and joyless. Now, it's important to not only understand what gaslighting is, but also what it isn't. Dismissing someone's opinion, uh, personally attacking someone, or posturing in a threatening way is not gaslighting. Uh, it may not be good, may not be something that we should do, uh, but gaslighting uh, is uh, an approach that happens in an underhanded and a subversive way. It's not a one-off comment or a one-time single encounter event. It is a, a sustained and systematic strategy uh, to change someone's perspective or their feelings. Basically, if it's not constant or not secret and underhanded, uh, it's not gaslighting. And as we've talked about uh, over these past couple of weeks with some of these terms, uh, the, the risk uh, that we take in using them uh, too much or excessively is that uh, we might undermine uh, someone's experience of them when uh, gaslighting is actually taking place. Um, and gaslighting uh, falls right into this category um, because people suffer from emotional abuse, uh, extreme manipulation, and false narratives uh, through gaslighting all the time, the effects of which can be felt in someone's life long after that experience has concluded. Now, I don't know that tonight I need to spend uh, too much time trying to convince anybody uh, that any of those things, emotional abuse, manipulation, uh, false narratives, I, I don't know that we need to talk too much about why those are a bad thing, right? I think we're all relatively on the same page, uh, and it's pretty well accepted in society uh, at large uh, that these things are bad and they shouldn't be tolerated. But at the same time, this is a real thing. Gaslighting is something uh, that really happens. And it might confuse us as to how someone might actually be convinced uh, that the consequences of this could be good for their life or uh, for someone else's life. And it's my hope that uh, in uh, this room uh, tonight, that this is a room full of people that would never do this or would never even consider uh, engaging in gaslighting. But at the same time, I also know that uh, it's not uncommon for us to find ourselves off the map. And if I had to guess, uh, at some point in time, there has probably been someone who uh, was in the middle of it, who had found themselves in the process of gaslighting someone and said to themselves, how on earth 
did I get here? And how, how in the world did my life come to this? So tonight, in uh, the spirit of prevention and in light of what we just read in those two verses uh, in Romans, I'm actually going to teach you how to gaslight somebody tonight. Uh, not that you ever would, and most definitely that you never should, but what are some simple everyday choices uh, that we could make that could possibly cause us to make a wrong turn? And what are the corresponding truths that can prevent us from ever getting to that point? Because if you've ever been going somewhere, you've been on a road trip or a journey of some kind, and you've taken one wrong turn, uh, then you might know that left unnoticed or uncorrected uh, over the span of 30 minutes, this one wrong turn can take you completely off the map. You can end up somewhere that you never intended to go uh, in the first place. And one wrong turn in life, one wrong turn in a relationship could eventually lead to us finding ourselves in a place that we never expected and didn't even ask or look for. But a place where gaslighting becomes a more conceivable possibility and worse, a reality. So number one, if you want to gaslight somebody, you could isolate innocence. You could isolate innocence. The book of Romans, uh, which these two verses that we read come from, uh, were written, the book of Romans was written to a church that was in the middle of some division and some confusion. The church in Rome had lived through a period of time recently where the Jewish people had been expelled from Rome by the emperor. They had to leave town and bug out. But after about five years, that decree went away, and so the Jewish Christians were allowed to come back to Rome, and as a result, they were able to re-enter the church there. But during the time away, uh, the church in Rome uh, which was made up uh, pretty exclusively of non-Jewish uh, Christians, it had become very non-Jewish in nature. Uh, some of the traditions and uh, cu customs that the Jewish people tended to associate with church and with their experience of God, those had gone away during that time. And so when these two groups of people come back together, they get back into uh, a church together, there was some tension and some division over what the church should look like and in terms of how they should practice and engage in their faith together. There was a difference in tradition. There was a difference in an understanding of how uh, to be faithful and how the coming of Christ changed everything that they understood about what it meant for them to connect with God and be unified as one people uh, under him. And because of this conflict, uh, what we read in the book of Romans is Paul's fullest explanation of the gospel. Romans is an unabridged version of what it means for Jesus to have come to earth, to lived, uh, died, and risen, and what the implications of that are for everyone who walks uh, the face of the earth, no matter any aspect of your background. But as we've been talking about here in Refresh, uh, this semester, if uh, that's a place that you go. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. And so when reading it, it's important for us to understand who it was written to and why it was written to them. And in this case, Romans was written to the Roman church to address the symptoms of isolation 
and division uh, that they were experiencing. But it was also meant to cure uh, the disease of isolation, because for that five-year period that those two groups of people were apart from each other, uh, these Gentiles and Jews were isolated. Uh, They each lived in their own echo chambers of understanding and their own perspectives that were not fully informed and practices uh, that were not fully in check. So the book of Romans is, in one sense, an act of unisolation that Paul uh, was using to help these people live in community together. Now, if we were to travel uh, a bit less than 2,000 miles due north from Rome and a bit less than 2,000 years into the future, uh, then you would find yourself in Sweden in the year 1973, uh, where and when a bank robbery took place and four hostages were taken in the process. And after the fact, they would refuse to testify, and they even went on to defend uh, their captors. And it's where we get the term Stockholm Syndrome from, when those who are held captive start to develop positive feelings towards their captors. Now, in the case of the Romans, these were two parties that were equally isolated and living apart from each other. Uh, And so there was a natural division there, and this, this division Uh, was equal. But in the case of like what happened in Stockholm in 1973, that isolation was unequal. And even worse, the unisolated party uh, used and held that knowledge uh, over and against those who were held captive. And that's not division, that's just captivity. When gaslighting is taking place, it happens because there are blatant lies that are being passed from one party uh, with more knowledge to another in order to stir up doubt and ultimately for them to believe something that isn't actually uh, true. But those lies can only be received and taken to heart by someone if they're innocent, as as in if they don't have all the information, they don't know any better, and if they are in isolation and they don't have anyone else in their life to question or to push back on the lies that they are being told which is why having someone isolated in their innocence is a road that could lead them to a place that they don't want to go. Number two, if you wanted to gaslight somebody, then you could say what you don't mean. Say what you don't mean. To continue that earlier example uh, of a wrong turn uh, that can ultimately lead you to a place that you never planned on going, Uh, You know, today the chances of that happening have gone way down because we all have maps on our phones, Google Maps, Apple Maps, I'm a Google Maps guy personally. But 25 years ago, uh, it was a different story, right? Uh, There were still resources that could get you uh, where you needed uh, to go, but not quite as many as we have uh, today. And when gaslighting is taking place, uh, there are two people in that vehicle, right? One driver and one passenger. And the driver, whether they know it uh, when that turn is taken or not, uh, or if they realize somewhere down the road and they just keep going, uh, for whatever reason, uh, the driver convinces the passenger in their innocence and isolation that they are headed the right direction, uh, even though uh, they know that it isn't uh, what's actually happening. Verse 18 uh, here uh, refers to people who are not serving Christ, but are instead serving 
of their own appetites. And in doing so, uh, are deceiving innocent people through smooth talk and glowing words. Paul is warning the people of the church here in Rome that they have to be on guard against who might try to undermine and take advantage of them. We know that this was a time of division because of the historical circumstances of the time, and because they were divided, they were uh, vulnerable to people who uh, maybe had other interests in mind than the welfare of the church and the advancement of the kingdom. And when someone is vulnerable, they are more susceptible to smooth talk and glowing words like what Paul is referring to here. And the worst thing that could happen is for this to lead them to being convinced to put their trust in something or someone that they shouldn't. Like you talked about last week, truth, the concept of truth, truth is unchanging. Another attribute of truth is that it's inevitable. It's not a matter of if the truth will come out. It's a matter of when and under what circumstances the truth will reveal itself. And in the case of our driver and our passenger that have taken a wrong turn uh, down this road, you would hope that the passenger would figure out what's going on and figure out a way to take the necessary action to stop the journey in the wrong direction before arriving somewhere uh, that neither of them ever should go. But arriving at that destination can become inevitability itself when trust is in place between the passenger and the driver. I don't know about you, uh, but personally, uh, there are people in this world that I have a whole lot of trust in. I'm talking about people like my parents, uh, Dr. Mark Keenum as another guy, and Hugh Griffith, all right? I mean, this is the elite. I would give these people more trust than just about anyone, right? So say that Hugh had like walked into my office yesterday morning and he said, you know what, Ryan, I think we should mix it up this week. Instead of you getting up there and preaching tomorrow night, I think you should just go up and like, you know, do the hokey pokey for a few minutes and then ask the band to just come up on stage. Maybe some of you would, you know, <laughs> rather have that. Um, but the thing is, <laughs> take your word on that, Ethan. The thing is, if that came from Hugh Griffith, honestly, like, I might do it. And I would at least consider it uh, because I have a whole lot of trust uh, in somebody like Hugh. Uh, and I wouldn't realize the truth of that matter, the truth of what I had just done until uh, I came up and did it and became YouTube video famous from like somebody who, you know, whipped their camera out. And obviously, Hugh would never ask me to do that, uh, nor is our a relationship one of innocence and isolation. But when a certain level of trust is in place uh, between two people, people will believe what they may not think for themselves otherwise. And if you throw in some smooth talk or a glowing word, as our text says, a kind-hearted sentiment or an encouraging affirmation, uh, people may even act against their best interests. Because when gaslighting is taking place, uh, the lies that are being fed and received uh, begin to grow, not only because the victim is innocent and isolated, but because they trust someone who doesn't deserve it. And will continue to until the truth inevitably comes out. At that point, it's not only a matter 
of when that truth reveals itself uh, as it is what has or already hasn't happened at that point. Which is why words that are being said but aren't meant is a road that could lead someone to a place that they don't need to go. Number three, if you were going to try to gaslight someone, then you could try to save your own skin. Because even if a relationship is existing in isolation where one party has the upper hand, and even if things have been said that weren't meant and false trust has been built, gaslighting doesn't happen without someone who is only looking out for their own personal interests. As Paul says here in verse 18, and for their personal interests only. But how we might wonder, does one get all the way to the point that they are so focused on serving themselves and themselves only that they would go to such great lengths to harm someone else? I don't know that I have the knowledge, nor do we have the time to fully answer such a large question, but here's what I do know based on how we read the Bible and what we see here in verse 18. God is, in, is capable of good and incapable of bad. All right, capable of good, incapable of bad. He is inherently good. He's never done anything bad, and he never will. We also are capable of good because we bear his image. In the name of God, through Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we also are capable of doing good. But we're also capable of doing bad because of sin that has come into the world, that has disrupted our relationship with God, and uh, has wreaked havoc here, there, and everywhere, all through creation ever since that moment in the garden. And as verses 17 and 18 say, uh, whenever we cause division or lie or do anything contrary to God's design, it's because we are serving an interest of ours that is not an interest of his. Because we are capable of bad and he isn't. Now that all may sound super trivial to you if you've spent any time around the Bible uh, in your life. But what it leads us to is some truth, some unchanging, inevitable fact that depending on our response could change everything. The truth that God is good and that we are capable of good through him. Now those may sound like two relatively simple truths to accept, and an easy choice to make, and for you, maybe they are. But if someone is making the conscious choice to gaslight, which is a conscious choice, then this, th this is truth that they either have never known or have lost touch with over time. Because at the end of the day, gaslighting is a matter of control. At the heart of it is one person's insatiable desire to be in control of someone else. But before it even gets to that point, I think for someone to do this and to be able to justify it in their own mind, there has to be a deeper battle at play. Gaslighting is a batter, battle for control within one person's heart before it goes after the heart of another. It's the belief that one knows what they need, when they need it, and how to provide it. It's the belief that one can save one's own skin. And while it hopefully won't lead to gaslighting for us, the battle for control is one that is fought within all of our hearts every day. Whether we want to admit it or not, we have moments, we have days, we have seasons where we will be convinced that we can save 
our own skin. But the fact of the matter is that we can't, which is okay because Jesus didn't try to save his own skin when he easily could have. He came to earth and lived among its people, both fully God and fully man, and gave it all up so that we could have another chance at new life through him. And through his death and resurrection, we are offered a model and an example uh, of not just the opposite of gaslighting, but of all sin. We are offered an example of love that is sacrificial and places the interests and needs of others above its own. Gaslighting happens, but the ultimate prevention technique for all of us is God in us. And the way that we help in the process of witnessing the extension of gaslighting is for his kingdom to come and his will to be done in each of our lives. Because through Jesus, we are anything but isolated. We have his word, which is the ultimate truth, and we can experience his love not only through ourselves, but through the church, through those around us. Because we can place our trust in Jesus and know that he will never fail us. He is trustworthy above anyone else, and that through his Holy Spirit, we will only find love growing within us and spilling out through us. And that through Jesus, we are offered the opportunity not to take control of our own life and find ourselves losing it because of that, but the opportunity to let go of keeping control for ourselves and to grab onto his grace, his unfailing, undeserved, and unrelenting love. As weird as it may sound, the only way to live a life that is truly and completely in control is to surrender it. And I don't, know what, I don't know what the alternative might be for you or for me, but I do know that I don't want to risk it because to control, we must first surrender. Let's pray. God, we come before you tonight as uh, broken people. We come before you tonight as unworthy we come before you uh, knowing uh, that we all have many moments, many days, many seasons where we're just simply looking out for us, where we're looking out for our own self-interests. And God, we know that uh, the only way to overcome that is through you, in your name, through Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, for you to fill us for us to confess in those places where we have held our will above yours and for us to give you control. And God, I pray that you would show us what it is that we need to do in each of our lives to fully surrender and fully offer control of it to you. We ask all this through Jesus. Amen. Amen.